Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary. Episode 23, Arctic Adventure, Lois and Perry. I have so many questions. Then, of course, there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Man of Steel, Answers Inside Commentary. I'm your Man of Steel apologist, Dr. Awkward. I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love discussing the Man of Steel and the DC Cinematic Universe. Together, we'll endeavor to answer the questions, criticisms, and controversies raised by Man of Steel and those eagerly anticipating the DCCU. This episode, we've got field expedient surgery. The scout ship finally takes off, but who's flying? Lois Lane and Perry White. This podcast dives deep into Man of Steel to answer the critics and the confused. This show is not meant to convert anybody, but to celebrate a film that will lead us into the DC Cinematic Universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love Man of Steel and who love to chew their food. Welcome back. Our last commentary episode was episode 19, and when we left off, Clark and Lois were entering the ship. One thing about Clark and his perceptions that we didn't cover in our last commentary directly was the fact that he only glimpses Jor-El's hologram. At least for now, in this moment, Clark's perceptions are very human. He can be surprised and he can doubt himself. Put it another way, when Clark first perceives Jor-El, he didn't slow down time to be absolutely certain that he had seen another person on the ship. He didn't zoom in and take in all of Jor-El's details and then file them away into an eidetic memory. And then he didn't sprint up to the hologram at super speed before it could get away. Instead, Clark behaves very much like anyone would. And this can be a further indication that Clark doesn't have super speed in terms of reaction time, or at least he doesn't have it now or in this context. We've talked about super speed many times and how superhuman reaction times create the risk of dehumanizing Superman and creating plot holes, but they may find a way to do it within limited windows like with heat vision, or after some training with, say, the Flash, or after the introduction of the Flash, which sort of shifts that burden over to him, or after the reality in this cinematic universe has been dialed back a little bit so that it's less of an issue. I know in the past that we've talked about Feora, but aside from her movement, she's not doing anything that people who've played intense action combo video games like Devil May Cry or Ninja Gaiden or Street Fighter can accomplish with their human level reaction times. But what I want you to take away from all that is the humanity of it, being surprised and doubting what you see. When we pick up in the film, Clark spots the hibernation pods and he wipes away the dust and we get the horror hit in the score to emphasize that this is a tense situation. some thoughts about the hibernation pod with a body in it, but you can listen to those at Supergirl Radio episode 5. I don't think I'm going to go into them here because it's a lot of speculation. But the gist of it is that Kara put Dev M into the hibernation pod as a way of stopping him, and that's the mummified body that Clark discovers. From the film itself, a first-time viewer would have none of that context. So for now, I think I'm going to skip it. I will say, however, that I love the open hibernation pod because mysteries like that make the film more intriguing. We don't need to have answers for everything. Now, what's interesting about the body is perhaps the kind of state of mind that it might put Clark into. The ethos of much of this film is show, don't tell. And with the haunting music and the ghost of Jor-El and the slight jump scare of the body in the pod, it's all conveying a sense of anxiety with entering this ancient relic. The dust and the death and the decay make Clark clearly aware that this is something abandoned and inactive. He's not expecting to encounter a living member of his species, and this body perhaps gives him a peek into his own mortality. Until this day, perhaps he's never known physical pain. He's no stranger to sensory pain or emotional pain, but he just faced off against a sentry that was able to challenge his strength and potentially cause him pain. And now he's confronted with one of his own dead, and it may force him to consider his own end. Seconds ago, he thought 
thought he saw a ghost, and Clark would be justified in feeling vulnerable and anxious. Yet, when he hears Lois cry out, his reaction is to leap into action. So, Clark's first instinct and action is to save Lois. It's very likely that he knows that she's a journalist, and he's only just arrived at the scout ship. He is literally moments away from obtaining the answers to the questions that have haunted him his entire life. Showing his face to Lois and rescuing her could potentially mean forever losing that opportunity. It's not like Clark knows that this ship can and will fly away, buried so deeply that he had to tunnel to it. And if Lois can identify him and wants to do so, the military could become a barrier to preventing him from accessing the ship for any future questions unless he's willing to fight them for access. Unfortunately, it's really easy for the audience to not give Clark the credit for saving Lois because we take that for granted. But in the context of the film, it's a sacrificial risk and Clark's instinctive heroic choice. There's no hesitation to save Lois and there's no consideration afterwards whether it was the right decision. I have two more notes here. Uh, first, Clark is strong enough to crush Kryptonian materials and we can use this detail to add something to our logical matrix of truths and potentially discover more about Kryptonian tech or powers. In other words, we have to reconcile the fact that Clark can crush the Kryptonian sentry here, but that the Kryptonian armor withstands his strength later. As a sentry serves a security function, you'd assume that it should have the same or similar or better durability than Kryptonian body armor. Yet here it appears to have worse. Well, how you decide to reconcile that can give us insight. Is the Kryptonian armor exceptionally rare? Is something about sentry technology not compatible with armor? Or is the durability of Kryptonian armor attributable to powered Kryptonians rather than the material itself? Should we revisit that bioelectric field theory? I have to think on this some more, but it's one of the things I enjoy about doing this podcast, is that going over everything with a fine-tooth comb means that sometimes I have to reevaluate my own positions and keep an open mind to the possibility that I've missed something or that I might have to reconcile something new. Well, the second note that I have marked down is about what constitutes a quote-unquote save. I don't think there's really a formal definition as what constitutes a save in a superheroic context, so I simply rely on common parlance. Does it make sense when you say it? If Superman saves Lois's life multiple times over the course of their lives, the fact that Lois is saved repeatedly doesn't make it just one save. It would be abnormal to say Superman saved Lois once and only once in all of comics. Similarly, the fact that Lois is mortal and will eventually pass away doesn't mean that Superman didn't save her either. It would be odd to say that Lois is going to die anyways, so Superman didn't save her. Yet, in my tongue-of-cheek Superman Saves No One video, I see that objection raised again and again, that people can't be saved repeatedly, and that people who will eventually die weren't saved. Well, the third objection commonly raised is that you can't save someone that you've endangered, or that saving somebody that you've endangered doesn't count. Well, we've already addressed part of that back in episode 19. There's little or no basis for alleging Superman endangered people in the first place. However, if you want to make that claim, the counter-argument is that you can save people that you've endangered, and it does count for something. How much it counts is a philosophical question, but consider the following example. If a doctor is negligent and their patient is dying due to their mistake, you have choice one, the doctor regrets her mistake and tries to save the patient and does, or choice two, the doctor walks out of the room and says, my mistake, no point in saving him, since now it doesn't count. Now, are these two choices morally equivalent? I don't think anybody would say that they are. Nonetheless, people make this claim about Superman all the time, that being to blame for the harm means that he is just as bad or equivalent to somebody who took no effort to mitigate the harm. And that's a poorly thought out allegation in my opinion. Now, there's a legitimate philosophical question as to whether two concurrent, related, or proximate events would constitute separate saves or not, and that's not something easily defined or untangled, which is why in the comments of the video I say it's not something to seriously worry about. For example, in some cases you can make a relatively easy distinction, like Clark saving the oil rig workers from fire and oxygen deprivation as one save, and then saving them from being crushed by the falling derrick as a separate save. 
you could also conflate all of that together as a single dangerous situation and call it one save, perhaps. But there are other cases where that kind of parsing is less clear. Like saving Lois from the damaged escape pod, you could parse it out as her being saved from the damaged pod and then being saved from the fall and then being saved from the explosion, which are all three separate means of her coming to harm. But I thought it would be reasonable to conflate all three of these because there's only one saving action that addresses all three. But these are semantics and philosophical questions, which ultimately we don't need to worry about. The exact count is less important than the fact that Superman does indeed save many people over the course of Man of Steel. All right, back to the movie. It's all right, it's all right, it's all right. It's all right. You're hemorrhaging internally. And if I don't cauterize this bleed, I can do things that other people can't. Hold my hand. This is gonna hurt. Well, earlier, I made a big deal about Clark showing his face to Lois, but let's also remember the context in which he's doing this. He's trying to calm her down. Lois is hurt and she's wounded, and she's just seen this stranger crush her attacker with his bare hands. Is it any wonder that she's scared? He's saying calming words, it's all right, repeatedly, and this mirrors Superman and Lois's first encounter in Action Comics number one, where Lois is visibly frightened by Superman, whose first words to her are, you needn't be afraid of me, I won't harm you. In panel 72 of Action Comics number one, Lois, although frightened, is looking Superman in the eyes, at his face, and in the next panel trusts him enough to climb into his arms and be taken away to be returned home. In Man of Steel, it's only once Lois locks eyes with Clark that his face strikes a deliberately serene look and she settles down. We'll get more into her viewpoint of this situation a little later, but Clark's actions and exposition are so matter of fact, it's crazy. But I think that belies a certain amount of experience helping people in situations like these. If you've ever tried to help somebody during a medical emergency when the patient is freaking out, it takes a certain amount of experience on your behalf to remain calm yourself. Here, Clark is again risking his secret before somebody whose very profession is to publish and spread the truth. But he's calm, he's cool, and collected in getting Lois to trust him, diagnosing her, and then treating her. This shows that Clark has picked up some knowledge and skills along his travels, knowing exactly how to help in crazy situations like this one. I can't remember the episode off the top of my head, but in a past podcast, we talked about Superman using his x-ray vision to catalog people's skulls. This isn't that, but it does show a level of experience using his powers to diagnose an injury and knowing that his powers can treat it. The development of those skills would have to be intentional. Although Clark is on a quest to find his answers, he has been deliberate about learning how to use his powers to help. The calming of Lois also reinforces one of the rational justifications for Superman as a maskless hero, the need for cooperation and trust from those being rescued. I believe I've seen it brought up several times from Justice League New Frontier to Batman Beyond to Superman to Daredevil, the hero who has to unmask himself and reveal himself to be human to earn the trust and the cooperation of somebody needing to be rescued. In a way, this is thematically important to saviors and rescuers that while they have the power to save you, they don't impose their will upon you and require that you accept the rescue to an extent. Through the entire exchange, Clark never lies to Lois, and he doesn't sugarcoat the truth. This is going to hurt. And the surgical use of his powers reveals two things. One, that he can use them with that level of precision, and two, that he uses them still within a human frame of reference. Again, I keep repeating it, but it's because so many people bring super speed-related baggage into the film. Note that Clark doesn't just blitz the surgery. It's not like Action Comics number 775, where spoilers for a 14 
14-year-old story, Superman performs neurosurgery on Manchester Black in the blink of an eye without Manchester's knowledge. The procedure takes time, and it takes enough time that he needs to hold her still. He invites her to hold his hand. She feels the pain and presumably passes out from it. I don't think anyone believes that Clark knocks her out. So again, this isn't just solved by super speed, and likewise, he doesn't just deliver her back to her camp after the surgery via super speed. So Clark says that he has to cauterize her internal bleeding, and I'm surprised that many people don't think this is a thing that's possible. I'm not a doctor of medicine, but between my friends who are, general domain knowledge, and a brief obsession with the trauma center games, and one-time oral surgery, I was always aware of this. Cauterization as a medical procedure is often accomplished by a probe, which delivers electric current to burn tissue and seal blood vessels, and to reduce or stop bleeding. However, such burn Burning to seal can be accomplished by chemicals like acid, direct heat like hot metal, or lasers, and it's even possible with sound waves. In fact, the military have a set it and forget it cuff or blanket in development meant to cauterize internal bleeding with high-powered ultrasound. This would allow for field-expedient emergency treatment of battle wounds in combat zones by putting the cuff over the wound to cauterize it. I'll put a link in the show notes. Well, we cut from low screaming under the red glow to Sikowski sleeping. And I don't have much to say here, except that they put a lot of detail into the interior of this set, and the shaking realistically moved a lot of the props throughout the pod, so this wasn't simply a poor man's process of shaking the camera. The liftoff gives us our first complete view of the enormous scale of the scout ship, and you can appreciate that this is alien technology. Since we didn't cover Krypton and we didn't talk about Cal's vessel taking off indoors, but hopefully this should be obvious that that's not possible with conventional human technology. PBS Digital recently released a great video about the loudest sound possible, and I'll put a link in the show notes, but that shows how tremendously loud a space launch can be. But here, despite the rumbling and incredible thrust, Kryptonian tech allows for liftoff without rendering Colonel Hardy and company completely deaf. Richard Schiff, who you may know from Aaron Sorkin's West Wing, talks a little bit about the set. Hi, I'm uh, Richard Schiff. Now is a good time to kind of look at some of the other stuff that we have about the, uh, the Northcom research station, uh, which was actually on the set in Vancouver in 360-degree green screen, um, which was the largest set that I've ever worked on and also the most green I've ever seen in my life. Obviously, all the background was uh, CGI'd. The rocket ship that we're looking for that takes off is uh, CGI'd. And uh, so we were looking at a lot of dots on the screen which I, you know, spent seven years in acting school learning how to do. Schiff is a bit glib about it, but there is something to the level of pretend that these actors have to bring to a visual effects heavy film. If you've watched any of the visual effects breakdowns or behind the scenes for this or other similar films, you can imagine the challenge of treating that scene with authenticity. Michael Shannon had to convey menace and authority while wearing what looked like quote-unquote a jester's outfit, a tight bodysuit covered in tracking markers. Amy Adams had to act against a paper cutout of that sentry drone, and so on and so forth. I don't think there was a single moment in the film where I thought that the actors were seeing something different than what we were seeing on screen, so the performance and the visual effects came together seamlessly. Schiff talks about the size and the scope of the research station set, which gives the actors more to play with, but note that they still shot much of this film on location. In our next little interview, interstitial scene with Lois's voiceover, Lois being found by the helicopter was shot on location, as was her arrival at Ellesmere, just literally seconds of Lois waking up and reacting. But they went to the effort of doing it practically and on location instead of a set. They're small things, but these kind of things lend authenticity to the film, and they give the actors things to work off of, and it helps keep the director on his toes and creatively challenged. Now, another note about this scene is that the cat's out of the bag. There are military personnel and civilian contractors 
characters who witnessed this event. There's an expression, three can keep a secret if two of them are dead. And this explains in part Lois's interest in publishing this story, because it isn't unreasonable for her to think that this is eventually going to get out there anyways, and she wants to get out in front of it. But more on Lois's motivations later. Let's talk about the logistics of two issues which arise from dropping Lois off. These are questions that sometimes get raised as diegetic plot holes, so let's do our best to answer these questions somewhat. First, who's flying the ship? And two, why can't the military track the scout ship? Well, for the first question, I don't think I have a final answer yet, but let me give my outline of my theory, and then perhaps, as our commentary continues, we'll finalize it someday. So there's a bit of a time skip in the story from Clark saving Lois to the scout ship taking off, to Lois being dropped off, and then to Jor-El meeting Clark for the first time. We have to assume that Lois being dropped off is something that Clark is comfortable with. For example, if Clark finishes cauterizing her wounds, then some sentries come to take her away, Clark is unlikely to just let that happen without following them to ensure that their intentions are wholesome. Similarly, even if they take off and land elsewhere, Clark isn't just going to let Lois be dropped off unless he knows that she she's going to be okay. He didn't save her simply to abandon her to die in the Arctic after all. But without seeing it, the logistics of this are a little awkward to imagine. There's basically three candidates for pilots. We have Jorel, the ship itself, and Clark. However, Jorel doesn't introduce himself to Clark until after Lois has been dropped off. So it seems unlikely that Jorel was flying the ship and asking Clark if they could drop Lois off. I also don't think that Jorel can fly the ship completely autonomously. If we assume that fact, it addresses questions like why Jor-El didn't fly the Black Zero into the sun, why Jor-El didn't try to attack Zod using the scout ship sentries, why Jor-El didn't fly the scout ship away from Zod's dropship, or why Jor-El didn't take the scout ship into the sun when Zod stepped aboard. All of those questions get addressed if the Jor-El AI has more limited control of the ship, and that makes a certain amount of sense. It's a little heady to think about, but at one one point in the film, there were at least three copies of Jor-El's consciousness out there, with two of them running, one on the Black Zero and one on the scout ship, with a dormant copy on the command key. Now, we're conditioned to trust and like Jor-El, and to take his good intentions for granted, but consider for a moment if the AI that we were talking about was Brainiac or Ultron, something malevolent, able to replicate, and potentially prone to rampancy. Sorry I had to throw in that marathon reference in there, but please disregard. <laughs> Especially with AI that's self-aware and deems itself a consciousness, there's cause to be concerned and to limit the powers and the access of such AI. So it's not unreasonable that Jor-El designed his AI to have such limits maybe. The ship seems like a slightly better candidate, but we have a slightly similar situation. The ship's AI doesn't seem to be fully functioning until Jor-El appears, and we hear it say, recursive diagnostics complete, guiding presence authenticated, all systems operational, and then Jor-El appears. While the ship taking off on its own seems normal, it's a little more difficult to believe that the ship considered the conscientiousness of dropping Lois off within the parameters of its agenda. In other in other words, the ship would be just as happy to continue on without dropping Lois off, or if it felt that Lois needed to be disposed of, I don't think it could have been done in an autonomous way that Clark would have been okay with if he wasn't involved. And so that leaves our last potential pilot, Clark, whose motives align perfectly with everything that we've seen. If he's the one that guides the ship to drop Lois off, then it makes sense that he'd be comfortable with parting with her because he set up the situation where she'd be found safely. Otherwise, Clark would probably be inclined to just keep her on the ship or to stay with her rather than with the ship. And it only makes sense to drop her off if you know that she's going to be okay. The main issue with this is, of course, that Clark should have no ability to pilot the Kryptonian ship. And I'm not sure that there's an elegant answer that just covers all of this, and it's not a film-breaking concern, but if I had to do apologetics for it, I think the answer lies in a mixture of all three potential pilots working together. Basically, the ship is able to pilot itself
himself but needs commands, and Clark has the intentions but not the skill, and so Jor-El's command key gives Clark the authority to command the ship, and he does so in line with his intentions. Essentially, you'd imagine the scene models the AI that we've already seen. On Krypton, the AI anticipate Jor-El's needs and volunteer information and queries and prompts for him to respond to. Although Jor-El is a bit rude and says, nobody cares, Kelix, we've seen that the ship responds to voice commands under Zod's control at least twice, once in deleting Jor-El's AI and also in targeting the C-17. So after Clark saves Lois, you can imagine the ship informing Clark that the ship is surrounded by alien humanoids and asking him if he'd like to relocate. Clark would say yes, and the ship would take off, and at some point mid-flight, the sensors would indicate that there are flying vessels out there, and Clark would ask how far away that search party was, and being satisfied that she would be recovered shortly, he could command the ship to touch down, drop off, and then he would resume the relocation of the ship. Of course, everything that I've explained is beyond boring and properly excluded from the film. Nevertheless, I don't think there's anything in there which is completely contradictory. It just isn't nice, neat, and elegant uh, as a theory. So if you've got a better one for working out what happened, be sure to let me know. I think a minor rewrite would have smoothed out these logistics if Lois simply woke up in or near camp instead of being discovered later some distance away. Everything else in the film plays out the same, but the audience would reasonably conclude that Clark took the unconscious Lois back to camp before returning to the ship to have it take off. Honestly, it really doesn't matter either way and is ultimately inconsequential to the movie, but there you have it. The second issue regarding tracking gets brought up more in the context of the dropships to the Kent farm, but it's applicable here too. The basic objection takes a number of forms and it's based on the faulty assumption that we can track anything on our planet perfectly. But they go something like this. How can Clark calmly converse with Jor-El when there should be fighter jets scrambling towards their position? And after the Battle of Smallville, the question is, why doesn't the government know Superman is Clark based on where the dropships landed? Well, first recall that under the radar is an expression because it's an actual thing. When the dropships moved through Kansas airspace, they could and were tracked. But once they dropped below the radar, the military lost the ability to track their movements with that kind of granular detail. Note that tragically, Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 even had transponders broadcasting its position, but its final position was unknown precisely because we lack this kind of absolute omniscient tracking of human airspace. Similarly, if there was military omniscience as to where everything was in airspace at all times, that would tend to run contradictory to tasking a drone to observe Superman at the end of the film. There would be no need for a drone if they knew where he was at all times. So the assumption that the military can track anything is faulty. That said, the scout ship is enormous, and it potentially could be pinged. And if you go by the comic, it's actually emitting a signal. And later, Zod is able to detect and find the scout ship from the Black Zero when he couldn't find or detect Clark's vessel, something that we explained in episode 15. So you could argue that the scout ship could be tracked, but even if we assume this, it's distinguishable from the response time to the Battle of Smallville for two basic reasons. First, Ellesmere Research Station is in the middle of nowhere when compared to Smallville, which is within striking distance of Northcom. And second, this is essentially a close encounter of the third kind, where humanity basically now knows that there's an extraterrestrial presence on Earth, but one that hasn't communicated with humanity and hasn't made any kind of action except to avoid actual contact. You can imagine Colonel Hardy immediately contacting his superiors and a mad scramble to decide what their response should be. A hostile response isn't advisable at this point for a technologically superior presence that has done nothing hostile itself. Whether or not they knew where the scout ship was, you can imagine Clark having plenty of time while the world's leaders decided in frantic closed-door meetings what to do. The context is completely different from the Battle of Smallville, which came after Zod's ultimatum, after Superman's surrender, and where the decision makers have already crystallized and formalized what their responses would be. By the time Jor-El's AI is up and running, many of these things can be mediated through Jor-El to explain Clark's comfort with leaving the ship unattended later 
for example. Okay, so that's some of Clark's perspective and apologetics, but before we move on to Lois, I just want you to remember two things. Entering the ship made Clark feel mortal, and two, that trust must be earned. These ideas will come up in the future when we address the questions of why Clark didn't consult Jor-El about Zod's ultimatum. What Colonel Hardy and his team surmised was a Soviet-era submarine was actually something much more exotic. An isotope analysis of the surrounding ice bores suggests that an object had been trapped in the glacier for over 18,000 years. As for my rescuer, he disappeared during the object's departure. A background check revealed that his work history and identity had been falsified. The questions raised by my rescuer's existence are frightening to contemplate, but I also know what I saw. And I have arrived at the inescapable conclusion that the object and its occupant did not originate on Earth. Okay, on to Lois and her perspective. Here, Lois gets two of the four voiceovers in the film, and like the other voiceovers, they consist of diegetic dialogue, which is repurposed by the filmmakers to tell the story. When Lois reads her story to Perry, it acts to provide a reflective leap in time over her rescue to this point. It's the same when she reads her unpublished follow-up story. When Jorel's dialogue to Cal is used in voiceover, it serves as an entry point into Cal's thoughts and recollections as he learns to fly. And when Zod gets his voiceover, it's putting images to Zod's story. I think we've covered the first half of the voiceover in the past, so I'm not going to comment on her prose style since I'm prone to unnecessary verbal flourishes like arrived at the inescapable conclusion myself. But I want to bring up two more things. First, that Lois is reading her article aloud to Perry, and it makes for a convenient voiceover, but it also isn't unrealistic. I'm not a journalist, but I've had my fair share of editors over the years, and a few of them for whatever reason, prefer being read drafts aloud. I can send that by email or I can provide it in print, but some like to hear it read. And it should go without saying that such a preference isn't a plot hole, but some people raise it as such, so I'm addressing it. There's nothing inconsistent about the logic or which breaks the rules of the world built by the film by having one particular story read aloud. I can't print this, Lois. You might have hallucinated half of it. What about the civilian contractors who corroborated my story? The Pentagon is denying that there was a ship. Of course they are. That's what they're supposed to do. It's the Pentagon. Perry, come on. It's me we're talking about. I'm a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter. Then act like it. Print it or I walk. You can't. You're under contract. I'm not running a story about aliens walking among us. Never gonna happen. Now, second, Lois raises a theme that Jonathan raised back when speaking with 13-year-old Clark. Lois says, frightening to contemplate. And it is. It means, as Perry says, that aliens walk among us without our knowledge. And the age of the ship suggests that they predate human history, meaning the scope of that infiltration is unknown. It's a radical and newsworthy claim whose revelation, from Lois's perspective, is not only absolutely true, but inevitable. But from Perry's Perry's perspective, something so confronting requires serious corroboration, and they go back and forth on the quality and the reliability of the sources. Perry questions Lois's eyewitness account, and then Lois raises the contractors, but then Perry holds the Pentagon above them, but then Lois impeaches their credibility. That kind of back and forth is what happens every day in all sorts of situations and often in a court of law. You've got witnesses called, their testimony is taken, their credibility is questioned, and then the fact finder, the jury or the judge, must weigh the testimony and decide. Witnesses can be reliable, unreliable, and they can earnestly believe that they're telling the truth, yet be in error. The 1950s Akira Kurosawa film Rashomon is a perfect parable of the same event from different perspectives. And I raise all of that because differences in opinion are common and reasonable. It's part of the reason that we have multiple jury members or multiple judges in higher courts rather than rely on 
on the judgment, opinion, or determination of a single individual. And it's kind of crazy how many alleged plot holes get raised because people try to treat human behavior like it's deterministic. That given a set of inputs, there is one and only one outcome or opinion which could ever arise. I've heard it said that there's no way that Perry would ever sit on this story. But that seems unnecessarily closed-minded to me. We get that this story is history in the making, but when it flies against everything that we've known in human history, I can understand the difference in opinion. Perry is interested in sources and corroboration because print journalism is no longer about being first or fastest, but expected to represent real standards and accuracy and expertise. Perry is properly protecting the reputation of the paper as editor-in-chief. And Lois raises her credentials, bringing up the Pulitzer Prize, but Perry raises the underlying principles of the prize. He says, then act like it, not necessarily because there's any one way that Pulitzer Prize winners act necessarily, but consider the context of the conversation. It's about the veracity of the sources and the strength and the quality of the corroboration. Lois is saying, somebody with a Pulitzer isn't going to lie. Trust me, Perry. But Perry is saying, somebody with a Pulitzer knows that I'm going to need more to print something like this. And so there's that reasonable back and forth. We've already talked about the lines about her walking and her contract in the past. Basically, they both feel strongly about this. Their scene and their interaction is short, but it's an interesting performance. And here's Fishbourne talking about the back and forth. Hi, I'm Lawrence Fishburne. Uh, I play Perry White in Man of Steel. So the introduction to the Daily Planet, there's a sense of history between uh, Lois and Perry. We were able to bring a kind of shorthand, Amy and I, where you get the sense that these people have known each other and worked each with each other for quite a while. And you also recognize that Lois is one of his stars. It's really important for him to treat her with respect, but it's also very important for him to make sure that she stays within the boundaries that they've set for themselves as journalists and that she doesn't just run off and cause a panic. So in that clip, Fishbourne talks about the sort of shorthand conveyed by the performance, and this is what I saw. Both actors are subtly animated by standing as equals, pacing around the room as they try to work this out. Gone is the frenetic energy or cartoonish bellowing of an editor berating his star reporter, although I've known at least one editor like that too. And instead, this is a Perry who stands toe-to-toe with his reporters on the content of his concerns and not the volume of his displeasure. The Daily Planet stuff, I, ha- I had a blast because I feel like that's where Lois is the most comfortable and that's where she feels the most powerful. That's her world. That's her, you know, and that's so much fun. And, and to work with actors like, like Lawrence, it was an instant rapport with the entire group at the Daily Planet. And I had so much fun working with Lawrence, who just immediately kind of dove right into that that sort of contentious relationship with me. And that was, that was fun. And you could tell that these were two people who really had a lot of respect for one another. And, but at the same time, like they butt heads, but that's part of their respect and love is they know the other person is not going to back down. And, and, um, Lawrence just made it so easy for me to to fall into that. Perry is willing to stand eye to eye with Lois in order to hear her pitch. But what's remarkable is that when he lays down his final verdict, he does so by sitting down in his chair. Despite literally lowering himself before Lois, it instead conveys authority. He gets grounded, settled into his throne, and he owns his office and his position. And the fact that he has this authority is why he's able to settle down comfortably and issue an edict even when Lois is standing. Basically, while standing and moving, he was showing his willingness to be persuaded and to move with her arguments. But once he sits down, his immobility of position is reflected physically by having him rooted to the spot. You'll notice later when Perry chews Lois out, he does so sitting from his immovable position of authority. If you go back over that scene, you'll see that Lois is exasperated as Perry starts to get behind his desk and 
lets out a sigh right before he sits down. So it's like a game where you still have a chance if Perry hasn't sat down yet. So whether consciously or unconsciously, she knows that once Perry sits down, it's all over. I love that we get that little beat of Lois reacting to Perry's final word, however, with a slight smile because basically she's already planning her next move and has decided to go around Perry. These are two Oscar caliber actors working with relatively dry expositional material, but they still manage to get a lot out of it in a really subtle and naturalistic way. Not just with the words and the expressions of their faces, but their body language and motion. That's a scotch straight up for the lady. I'm sending you the original article. My editor won't print it, but if it happened to leak online... Got it. But didn't you once describe my site as a creeping cancer of falsehoods? I stand by my words, Woodburn, but I want this story out there. Why? Because I want my mystery man to know I know the truth. So Lois meets with Woodburn, a blogger with a name which is a portmanteau of Woodward and Bernstein of the Watergate affair. But in an interview with Empire, writer David Goyer abstracts it one level above by saying it's a reference to All the President's Men, a 1976 film starring Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman as Woodburn and Bernstein. Goyer also mentioned that originally Woodburn was supposed to be Jack Ryder, who comic fans might know as The Creeper. And that adds a neat little nod when Lois calls his blog a creeping cancer of falsehoods. Well, we've already talked about ordering scotch in a past mailbag episode, but a YouTuber recently asked, why is beer for boys? Questioning why beverages have become gendered in our culture when the product itself is completely gender neutral. And I find that an interesting lens to look at Lois's choice of drink, and it's probably a deliberate creative choice. In the novelization, it started out as an old-fashioned, but in the film, it's scotch straight up. Take that for what you will. Please keep that in mind when contrasted against this next little tidbit, which I don't think has been raised by anybody that I could find in my cursory internet search. For a big budget film like Man of Steel, with a commitment to veracity, reality, and texture, the prop department is going to spend hours upon hours crafting little details that the viewer may never appreciate, which may only come onto the screen for a mere split second or sometimes never even make it into the film. In Perry's Daily Planet office, for example, there are certificates and diplomas and art hung on the wall. On his desk are awards and knickknacks. Only in the behind the scenes footage can we read some of those awards. One where Perry wins the Man of the Year Award for Humanitarian Efforts. All in an effort to make a living, breathing, lived-in world, the prop department spends time crafting Perry's unseen life, much of it which will never come into focus for us to read. And knowing that it may never make it onto camera, the prop department often has fun with the text of what they write. They may make reference to creators, comics, or characters, or even tell complete stories. One example of this was later in the film when populating Lois Lane's apartment, there is a cork board and newspaper clippings pinned to it, which contained a story which was about essentially kryptonite scattered throughout Metropolis. The prop showed up again after Man of Steel's release and briefly started a rumor that it was the basis for the sequel. But the rumor was quickly quelled when the image of that same paper showed up in Man of Steel pre-release production photos. Okay, what I'm getting at with all of this is that the text on props aren't necessarily canon. Personally, I don't consider printed materials with lorem ipsum placeholders to be a plot hole if they get caught on camera. It's a production gaffe, perhaps, but it's not something significant to the plot. Now, keep that in mind when considering some of the leaks about Batman v Superman relating to some gravestones caught by intrepid scoopers. The prop department knows that they have to populate that graveyard. They know that the headstones and the markers need names, and depending on what the shots call for, they may or may not have the freedom to play with the names on those stones. Moreover, the names are not in and of themselves dispositive, since it's not an uncommon experience for people to share the same name. No country for old men. There's a question. That 70s show. <laughs> Scrubs. Married with children. 
Now is the paper? Instead of, say, using local papers or making a new one for a relatively cheap price, most productions go for a newspaper prop made by a company called Earl Hayes Press. That particular model has not been changed from the late 60s and always has the same pieces on one, a warehouse burning down, and the house trying to okay a compromise bill with the president. While TV shows like Charmed and Louie have used it, high-budget movies have used it as well, because why the hell not? It's not like you can just get a newspaper literally anywhere. Even Back to the Future 2 and Casper use one side of it, showing Marty's father being murdered and a stopping a crime, but still going on about that damn compromised housing bill. That woman's probably in real life dead now. Probably, right? Okay, so that is a lot of disclaimers, but it's because the following has the potential to upset some, and I just want to make it clear that in context, this is possibly non-canonical and incredibly fleeting. So returning to the bar, we get a split-second glimpse of the first few lines of the article on Lois's phone, and I don't think we were ever intended to perceive it, but here's what it reads. Arctic Adventure Mystery Man tall, dark, and handsome, is overused in describing the perfect man, unless the man happens to be perfect while also being tall, dark, and handsome. <laughs> so uh, maybe you can understand why I've so heavily disclaimed these lines before. Frankly, they're not great and they're borderline terrible. Here, Lois's article is about the first documented encounter with extraterrestrials, which is of historic significance to all of humanity, and it begins by fawning over Clark's good looks. So far as I'm concerned, those lines are non-canonical, and they're not actually part of the plot or the story, simply drafted by somebody in the prop department, and in no way reflects the intentions or the thoughts of the filmmakers or the characters. However, if you desperately need apologetics for that, I'd just say that it's only the first two opening lines of an entire article by a Pulitzer Prize winner, who may find some miraculous way to make that opening work with the profound nature of her entire piece. As bad as those two lines are, we simply don't have the full context. For all we know, she does a 180 on that opening and then deconstructs it within the body of her article. Or maybe the first page on the screen is an intentional decoy to prevent casual snoopers from reading any further. If I came across those first two lines, I know I'd stop reading. <laughs> Uh, those are thin apologetics, but it's for a non-existent criticism. Like I said, as far as I'm aware, I'm the only person to comment on those lines so far. And for good reason. Who else is crazy enough to pause and zoom on something that is legible only for a few frames on screen? <laughs> Only me who likes to chew my food, and when you do that carefully, sometimes you get an errant piece of inedible seed or a piece of gristle not meant for consumption. Okay, we've discussed this more than enough. Let's get back to the lines. Lois, who has gone from a reputable paper to Woodburn's creeping cancer of falsehoods, gets that assessment thrown back into her face by Woodburn. She seems to really need him in this situation, but instead of playing nice or groveling after turning the article over, Lois says, I'll stand by my words. And that shows her sense of integrity and spirit. She's not going to go back on her assessment or placate Woodburn's ego just to get what she wants. And Woodburn backs down and later shows his spinelessness when he sells Lois out on national TV. We've talked earlier about body language and there's a quick bit here that's a little fun. Lois downs her entire drink in one go and Woodburn reacts with a raised eyebrow. But let's get back to the why she would do this. Originally, I approached this from the angle of journalistic integrity and as a leak. And that meant tackling things like WikiLeaks, Edward Snowden, etc. under some sort of imperative to publish what is newsworthy. And that's an interesting angle that we'll definitely explore eventually. But I don't think it's the main consideration here. Trying to understand why a serious journalist like Lois would go against her editor and leak a story and then kill that story after meeting Clark. Clark gets into really sophisticated, philosophical, journalistic ethics, if viewed purely under that journalism lens. I pulled out that code of ethics from the Society of Professional Journalists, and I looked through the comments and the cases as if I were Lois's defense attorney, trying to articulate why she's better than a blogger. However, I realized that I needed to take a step back and to put the journalism angle away for a bit, just to put myself in her shoes. Lois can and does speak and act for herself. Lois answers the why and her actions make sense if we take time to empathize with her and to listen to her. When Woodburn asks Lois why she wants the story out there, she says, because I want my mystery man to know that I know 
the truth. Well, let's break that down. Before, when Lois reads her article to Perry, she only calls Clark her rescuer. And here, she calls him a man, not an alien, not a being, an extraterrestrial, or infiltrator. From Lois's perspective, other than Clark's origins and powers, everything he's done is human. He got into the camp like a human would. He spoke English, he showed compassion, he tried to calm her, and he saved her life and let her go. He wore normal human clothing, he exuded human empathy, he sided with her instead of the sentry, and he revealed his face and his abilities to a journalist, and again, let her go. All of this is easy to take for granted if you assume that Clark is good, but if if you look at this from Lois's perspective, with what little she had to go on, she can still reasonably consider Clark a benevolent rescuer. It's with this mindset that she wants to get the story out there, and as she says, she wants her rescuer to know that I know the truth. The emphasis is on Clark learning something about Lois, not about the world learning about Clark. Given that the article seems favorable, with Clark cast as a rescuer, it means that she wants Clark to know that she knows that he's an alien but that she still perceives him as a rescuer. In other words, Lois is putting it out there that here's somebody who knows the truth but still accepts Clark. It's the very thing that Clark has wanted and hoped for. And in fact, her plan to reach Clark works, as we discussed in episode 11, by the very fact that Clark does indeed find her. Why does Lois want Clark to find her? Well, the next time Lois and Clark meet, they have this exchange. I figured if I turned over enough stones, you'd eventually find me. Where are you from? What are you doing here? Let me tell your story. What if I don't want my story told? It's going to come out eventually. And this exchange brings into focus Lois's interests and her form of journalistic integrity. Perry was concerned with the integrity and the reputation of the paper, demanding reputable sources, which Lois recognizes. She knows what his interests are, which is why she appeals to that by saying her sources dried up to kill the story. It's not that she doesn't understand Perry. It's that her interests or priorities are slightly different. Her integrity is not about telling the story first, but telling the complete story in a way that repays her rescuer. In Lois's mind, this story is inevitable, and it's going to break on her own. Clark can't stop helping people, and there were witnesses at Ellesmere. As she says, it's going to come out eventually. What Lois wants to do, consistent with journalistic ethics, is to tell the complete story so that Clark's benevolence and humanity comes through, and he isn't judged only as an alien when the inevitable story breaks. However, as her story is in the interest of helping her rescuer, it also makes sense that she kills the story after talking with Clark. But we're getting ahead of ourselves, and we'll talk about that when we get to it. But what I'm impressed with is this is the mark of a seasoned journalist. The imperative to publish newsworthy information is not unlimited. The classic example is maintaining the secrecy or the confidence of troop movements. And Lois doesn't automatically assume that the public's right to know trumps the privacy of an individual. She's able to use judgment and balance when to keep something confidential and when to publish. Broadly speaking, journalists in the making usually mature in their ethics. When they start, they tend to have few ethical considerations and want to topple the establishment and make a name for themselves, and they rush to publish. Then when they learn the code or they get a job or a reputation with something to lose, then they tend to become by-the-book people who follow the code. But after they've built up a body of experience, they begin to rely more on judgment. The code is still there, certainly, but they aren't citing to it line and verse or following it to the letter, the reporter relies more on their personal body of experience in interpreting their ethics. Here's Pulitzer Prize winner, journalist Carl Bernstein of the Watergate matter that we mentioned earlier, spending two minutes to talk about how his experience shaped his view of journalistic ethics. The most important ethical issues and the most difficult ones are the human ones. Uh, because a reporter has enormous power to hurt people. And uh, the best example I can give of it is, uh, is not in Watergate, but one of, one of the favorite stories that I've ever done that, that I really enjoyed doing was a huge takeout uh, about a group of people who were part white, part black, part Indian. Uh, they're known as tri-racial isolates. And they're, they're a couple hundred thousand uh, 
people organized in tri-racial isolate communities in, in, in America. And the particular group I wrote about were called the We Sorts, and they lived in Southern Maryland. Uh, and, uh, and they had never been able, like most tri-racial isolate groups, to, to integrate with either the society at large, with blacks, or with whites. So they had evolved, and there are many of these communities, the Melungeons in Tennessee, the Jackson Whites in New Jersey, uh, the Wee Sorts in Maryland, which comes from an expression that uh, we sorts of people are different than you sorts of people. And I, I wrote about this amazing community. Uh, and, uh, and little did I think that the children would be ostracized in school because they share their six core last names. There's a lot of intermarriage. And children of these six core families were really ostracized in school. And it really made me think, uh, as, as a number of others, I think more than anything, I always had a consciousness of how you have the power to, to hurt someone and therefore your obligation to be fair, to give people an opportunity to say, hey, is this really what happened? Uh, and to look at the consequences of what now. Could I have avoided? I, I don't know what I could have done to avoid that hurt, but it was one of those things that made me very conscious. And here's Jeff Jarvis, former editor of the New York Daily News and a professional journalist of over 40 years, who now teaches journalism ethics at CUNY's Graduate School of Journalism, commenting on similar ideas. A code of ethics doesn't solve anything. It might be a guide, but at the end of the day, individuals have to make their own ethical decisions every time they face a question and a quandary. I have, have had editors who've stood by me and defended me when I pissed off somebody in the company. And I've also had editors who've come after me and said, oh, you can't do that because it's going to piss off somebody. And no code was going to deal with that. I think that I've learned new ethics in the blog world online. That's not to say that they're better. That's not to say that I reject the ethics of journalism that I learned before. I don't. I teach them. Things that I wouldn't have done back in the days when I was a full-time reporter, but I think are very important now. I've learned a new ethic of the correction. On blogs, if we make a mistake, we don't erase it. We cross it out. We fess up. We admit it was there. And if we don't do that very quickly, we're going to lose credibility. Those are new ethics that I've learned online that I think old media can learn from. At the same time, there are ethics of the old world that live forever, that are immutable. Uh, fairness, accuracy, uh, balance, not objectivity. But I think those are things that we can do a better job of helping to teach from old media. I really like that the filmmakers presented a Lois that does the real hard work, is on the ground, gathering interviews in person and doing the research. Work that takes time. It takes travel. It's expensive and costly, more so than perhaps modern forms of internet journalism. However, despite that cost and personal investment, she has the experience and the maturity as a journalist to not put the story above people or to fail to listen to that still small voice that says what's right. Lois is a bit of a rule breaker, putting principles over fixed codes, which puts her in good company with Jorel, Jonathan Clark, and so on. Her role as a herald, an attempt to appeal to Perry, has parallels with Jorel trying to get the council to accept the calamity to come. It's interesting that she gets entrusted with the plan and the torch is passed directly to Lois by Jorel. Note, Jorel could have said, go speak to the copy on the scout ship and he'll explain. We'll definitely get into that when it comes up, but I just wanted to briefly contrast Lois and Clark when it comes to journalism. Although Clark chose to work at the Daily Planet, it's as a means to an end. He describes it as keeping him aware of trouble and giving him the freedom to avoid being questioned. So being a reporter is a way to help people. However, for Lois, journalism is not just the means, but the actual end goal. In researching for this episode, I found a lot of examples of Superman getting beat up for his lack of journalistic integrity and ethics, and anyone familiar with the mythos won't have trouble raising some of the ethical dilemmas raised by how he's been portrayed in relation to his job. But generally, Lois is 
is held up as an exemplar of the profession, with Clark a little less so. That said, here's a short segment from Studio 360 on Superman as a journalist. And Clark Kent, of course, is a mild-mannered reporter. Clark Kent may seem like just a mild-mannered reporter, but listen, not only does he know how to treat his editor-in-chief with the proper respect, not only does he have a snappy, punchy prose style, but he is, in my 40 years in this business, the fastest typist I've ever seen. You'd think Superman in his day job would be a firefighter or an emergency room physician, something more heroic than a reporter. Studio 360's Derek John had this same thought. There's no getting around it. Superman's day job does seem odd today. And I'm not alone. Just ask Stephen Colbert. Superman knows he's much more effective against his enemies if no one knows who he really is. So... (laughs) He disguised himself as the one thing farthest from a hero, a journalist. And... Ouch. But there was a time when the Clark Kents of the world were just as heroic as Superman. And besides, there were practical considerations, too. Working for a newspaper, you have a flexible schedule. You can run into the coat closet, strip down to your underwear, fly off, and save the world. Tom Henderson is a columnist at the Lewiston Tribune in Lewiston, Idaho. And you can have long, unexplained absences, which is one of the things I like about my real job. Henderson has been known to dress up as Clark Kent for Halloween and still buys the latest issue at his local comic book store. His favorite clips adorn his office wall under the heading, Everything I Need to Know About Journalism I Learned from Superman. A quote from Superman that I always like is, I don't want to exploit your situation, but in my line of work I see a lot of tragedy. I've watched friends die. I've had to do my job amid all manner of inhumanity. But I do it because I believe I can help, because I believe that the press serves the public. Clark Kent was invented because Jerry wanted to be a journalist. Thomas Andre conducted an interview with Jerry Siegel back in the 70s. And Jerry wrote a one-act play in high school called The Fighting Journalist because Jerry was very interested in progressive causes and people who fought the establishment. There is also a crusading aspect to journalism. There's that need to or that desire to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. The boys' high school crush on journalism was a product of their era. Both worked on their high school rag, The Torch, and Schuster used to hawk papers as a newsboy for the Toronto Daily Star. In fact, Clark Kent was at the Daily Star originally. And by the time he joined the Daily Planet, America's free press was proving itself on the front lines of World War II. This is Trafalgar Square. The noise that you hear at the moment is the sound of the air raid siren. Ed Murrow is <laughs> not Superman, but the fact that he's willing to sort of put himself on the line like that to get the story, I think, carries over into these comic book images. Richard Ness is the author of the book From Headline Hunter to Superman. He says the Daily Planet was just like any other newspaper. You always had the hard-bitten editor who was yelling at everybody. I want the real story. What's he got hidden under that cape of his? Batteries? I tell you, boys and girls, whichever one of you gets it out of is going to wind up with the single most important interview since God talked to Moses. You always had the copy boy who wanted to become a reporter and idolize the guys who were... Clark, we've got to go to Henderson with this. Sure, let's go. Not you, Jim. You've got some work to do. Oh! Jeepers! You always had the tough female reporter who sort of held her own against the guys. And let's get something straight. I did not work my buns off to become an investigative reporter for the Daily Planet just to babysit some hack from Nowheresville. Lois was the spitting image of ace reporter Torchy Blaine, who was the lead in a bunch of screwball comedies from the early 30s. She also sounded a lot like Rosalind Russell in 1940s, His Girl Friday. Now get this, you double-crossing chimpanzee. There ain't going to be any interview and there ain't going to be any story. I wouldn't cover the burning of Rome for you if they were just lighting it up. In Superman from 1978, Margot Kidder as Lois Lane was just as brassy. But she was also living in a country still reeling from Watergate. Why are you here? There must be a reason for you to be here. Yes, I'm here to fight for truth and justice in the American way. (laughs) You're going to end up fighting every elected official in this country. Only nine years later in Superman 4, the press looked just as bad as the politicians. And the Daily Planet had a new Rupert Murdoch-like owner, who turned it into a sleazy tabloid. Tone down our headlines. Lacey, that's all a common man reads. Well, we could do with a little less sensationalism. Less sensational papers go broke. Ironically, the same year Christopher Reeve made his last appearance as Clark Kent, he played another journalist in a movie called Street Smart, based on true events. 
He plays a New York reporter who sort of makes things up and manipulates a story. So it's almost like he's shedding the last vestiges of that Clark Kent image in, in that movie. You're not getting me. I'm trying to tell you there aren't any notes. There's no notes, no tapes, nothing. He made the whole thing up. It's fiction. It's a little unsettling to hear the voice of the mild-mannered reporter admit to fabricating his stories. But for Tom Henderson, the Idaho columnist, Clark Kent was never so squeaky clean. Here he is making the news while he's reporting it. From a basic ethical standpoint, I don't think he would pass muster with Society of Professional Journalists' Code of Ethics. He often writes about, you know, Superman in very glowing terms. It's one of those things you have to accept within the ecosystem of comics and not apply too much of a real-world standard to a man who flies around with his underwear on the outside of his pants. Nowadays, the only journalists in their underwear are bloggers. But not Clark Kent. He's always stuck in the past with his pencil and notebook. Why is that? Maybe we don't want to face up to what he might look like today. Someone less mild-mannered. Hi, I'm Bill O'Reilly. Thank you for watching us tonight. Truth, justice, and the American way. The code of Superman. Is it the code of the United States? For Studio 360, I'm Derek John. All right, I think I've rambled on long enough. Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network. So here are some promos for the network shows that I suggest you check out if you want to extend your enjoyment of the Superman mythos. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring Superman and Batman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast, the DC Comics Presents Show, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman Podcast, It's Superman, the Schuster Herald Podcast, The Carousel Podcast, Superman Forever Radio, Superman Lives, Up, Up and Away, Cadmus to Crisis, a Superboy Podcast. The Amateur Steel, a John Henry Allen's podcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, Russell Brad, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Sam Rizzo, Danny Saab, Bob Fisher, Chris Moe, Mario Benessi, Drew Wintermeyer, David Byer, Matthew Epps. I'm Isaac. I'm Adam. Dave Eunice and co host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Thanks so much for listening. I just love discussing this stuff. And if you've been sticking with me, hopefully you do too. I am genuinely grateful for each and every listener and hope you'll join us at manofsteelanswers.com. That way, if you have a question you want answered or insight that you want to share or commentary to make, you can put your post in the comments for your like-minded apologists to see. Or you can email me at mosaic at manofsteelanswers.com. If you like what you heard, please review the show on iTunes and subscribe. This is Dr. Awkward, your DC Cinematic Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time. You're the answer, son. That's 15 years ago, and it hasn't exactly gotten better. It's gotten worse, obviously. What, what has happened in the last, frankly, it's the very, last three it's, decades? It's very, it's very complicated, and it can't be it separated from the rest of the culture. You can't separate journalistic culture from the rest of, of popular culture. Journalism, I think that piece says in there, good journalism is popular culture, but it's popular culture that stretches and informs its readers rather than that which descends to the lowest common denominator. I think I've used it in, yeah, in speeches ever since. And, and, I, and I believe that. Where we don't divorce what we do from the rest of the culture. When you have a culture in, in which hard, complex truth is no longer the coin of the realm, or is devalued, and I think that's what what we've seen. So when we determined that, that Marla Maples is bigger news than Nelson Mandela, not in just a New York Post headline, but in Newsday and on NBC O&O in New York, mm-hmm. 
That is a triumph of idiot culture. You're the answer, son.